0: I went ahead and turned off my email so it won't be digging in the background when my microphone is off. Uh, my name is Angela Brintlinger. I am the Director of the Center for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies here at Ohio State University, um, and I am really pleased to bring to you today in our series of what we're calling Ukraine Wednesdays my colleague David Hoffman. Um, let me just uh, tell you again, I know some of you have come to many of these talks, uh, others have might wanna to come to the, the last one, which we'll be having next week. Uh, the war is not ending, the war is uh, continuing. The war has been going on for uh, some eight years and I don't personally see any end in sight, um, but I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, from a, a real history specialist um, to uh, try to give us some context. Uh, we will do our talk today. Uh, David will talk for a while uh, and then we'll do uh, what we usually do a Q&A Um, Alicia will uh, give you some information in the chat to help you um, ask questions. I hope you do have questions for our specialists. So Professor David Hoffman is a specialist in Russian and Soviet history, uh, with a particular focus on the political, social, and cultural history of Stalinism. His most recent monograph is The Stalinist Era uh, from Cambridge in 2018. He's also the author of Cultivating the Masses, Modern State Practices in Soviet Socialism, 1914 to 1939. Peasant Metropolis, Social Identities in Moscow, 1929 to 1941, which won the Ohio Academy History Award for Best Book in 1995. And Stalinist Values, the Cultural Norms of Soviet Modernity, 1917 to 1941, which analyzes Soviet official culture and the ideological and behavioral norms it was designed to instill. Uh, David Hoffman and I arrived at Ohio State the same year, in 1994, and he's been a a treasured colleague who has nurtured uh, generations of Russian and uh, Russian-adjacent historians out into the world from our PhD program, as well as taught many, many undergraduates here in his years. And I'm looking forward to his comments today. Thank you, David, for joining us.
1: Thank you, Angela, for that very warm introduction. My goal today is to provide some historical context to help understand Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine both have very long histories going back centuries, but my focus here will be on the recent past, that is events since the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. In particular, I will talk about Ukrainian independence, Putin's rise to power in Russia, the 2014 Revolution of Dignity in Ukraine, and Putin's decision to invade. Ukraine. While far from inevitable, Putin's invasion, in fact, has uh, is following his pre-established patterns, patterns of military aggression to intended to increase Russian geopolitical power. Let me um, go ahead and share my screen because I want to begin with a map of the Soviet Union. <laughs> as it existed in 1991. The Soviet Union had a federal system. Every major nationality within the country had its own territorial unit. There were 15 republics in all. Uh, You can see here the one that's by far the largest was the Russian Federative Republic. Ukraine, um, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, pictured here in green on the left, uh, was the third largest in terms of territory, the second largest in terms of population. All of the Soviet Republics were under the control of the Communist Party and a highly centralized system based in Moscow. But that centralization began to break down in the late 1980s when Gorbachev introduced democratic reforms. And this gave nationalists in various republics, including in Ukraine, the opportunity to demand independence. And this independence they achieved when the Soviet system collapsed in 1991. So in place of one country with 15 republics, there emerged 15 independent countries one of which was the Russian Federation, and another of which was Ukraine. Here is uh get my screen to advance. Um, just a second, I'm going to need to.
0: Yeah, if you need to refresh, go ahead.
1: Try to try that again here. <clears throat> um, Okay, here is a photo of the first presidents. um, uh, In the center on the left, Boris Yeltsin, the first president of the Russian Federation, and the center on the right, Leonid Kravchuk, the first president of independent Ukraine. Following the breakup of the Soviet Union, the newly independent countries had to undergo a transition to post-communism. And this involved replacing a state-run planned economy with a free market economy. Uh, the transition was very difficult. It involved a lot of economic hardship in all of the former Soviet republics, all the Soviet successor states, including in Ukraine. Here, I'm going to focus mainly on the economic transition in Russia, because I want to explain Putin's rise to power. And let me say here at the outset, uh, explaining this does not mean validating it. I think that um, on the contrary, Russians had a real opportunity after the collapse of communism in 1991 to achieve a real democratic system. Instead, they ended up with a brutal autocrat in the person of Vladimir Putin. So this requires some historical explanation why that happens. Um, So, Boris Yeltsin, the first president of the Russian Federation, decided to pursue a quick transition to capitalism. Taking the advice of Jeffrey Sachs and other US economic advisors, he instituted a policy known as shock therapy. Shock therapy uh, involved the immediate freeing of prices, which resulted in hyperinflation in Russia prices began to increase at a rate of 200% a month. In other words, over 2,000% a year. As a result, people's life savings became almost worthless overnight. Uh, For Russians, this was um, an extremely difficult time, uh, remembered as a time when people simply lost everything in the transition to capitalism. Shock therapy also involved privatization, the rapid sell-off of state enterprises. This was done with no legal safeguards, with no regard to equity in terms of distribution of wealth. Um, Instead, the advice of U.S. economists was simply to do this as quickly as possible, with no regard to the social consequences. As a result, there was a great deal of corruption, a handful of oligarchs became extremely wealthy, average Russians saw their standard of living fall sharply. Many people were forced to sell their possessions on the street simply to to make money for food. This picture here shows a site that was very common in Russian cities in the early 1990s. As a result of shock therapy, Russian GDP declined by 50%. Uh, it fell roughly in half during the 1990s. Um, By way of comparison, the Great Recession in the United States, 2008-2009, saw a GDP decrease of around 4 percent. So this decline more than 10 times worse. As you can see, um, the GDP of Russia would then rebound in the 2000s. But um, this GDP, Decrease uh, involved the closure of inefficient factories. There was unemployment, poverty, as well as the hyperinflation that I already mentioned. Russian people had expected prosperity. Instead, they got extreme economic hardship. And at the same time that this economic catastrophe was taking place, Russia's international standing fell to a new low. The Soviet Union had been a superpower rivaled the United States for world domination. Now, Russia had lost control of Eastern Europe. It had lost control of the non-Russian Soviet republics. Even within the Russian Federation, the government had a hard time controlling territory. There were separatist movements within the Russian Federation. And in fact, the Russian government could hardly even collect taxes uh, at this time. So from a hyper-centralized world superpower Russia emerged as a shrunken state, weak and humiliated. Not surprisingly, Yeltsin's popularity plummeted. His approval ratings by the late 1990s were in the single digits. His image was also plagued by poor health and instances of public drunkenness. So this combination of Yeltsin's weak leadership and Russia's decline made some Russians long for a strong man, someone to take charge, restore order, try to restore Russia's position in the world. Yeltsin himself was desperately seeking a strong prime minister to try to bolster the popularity of the Russian government. In a span of two years, 1998, 99, he went through five prime ministers, sacking one after another, Finally, in August of 1999, he appointed Vladimir Putin as the new prime minister of Russia. Putin was only 46 years old. He was relatively unknown at the time. He had served one year as the head of the Russian Security Services, the FSB, that is the successor to the KGB. Most people expected that he would not last long in power. But then. Within one month, Russia was hit by alleged terrorist attacks. Bombs exploded in apartment buildings in Moscow and two other Russian cities. 300 people were killed. The attacks were blamed on Chechen terrorists. But this never, in fact, was proven. There was even evidence, some evidence, that the Russian security services, the FSB, was behind these bombings that had carried them out in order to blame Chechens and galvanize support for a Russian invasion of Chechnya. Chechnya is a region within the Russian Federation. It's located in the North Caucasus, as you can see on the map, far to the south of Moscow. It's uh, a region inhabited by Chechens, a national minority within the Russian Federation. Chechens are largely Muslim people. For roughly two centuries, they've been resisting Russian rule. And in the early 1990s, Chechen separatists had declared independence from the Russian Federation. For much of the decade, the Russian government had fought unsuccessfully to try to reestablish control over this territory. So Putin, um, newly appointed as prime minister, took on the role of a tough-talking leader, who ordered Russian troops back into Chechnya in order to subdue it. Russia's war in Chechnya was especially brutal. It involved the bombing and shelling of civilian areas. Thousands of Chechens were killed. Hundreds of thousands had to flee their homes. The Chechen capital of Grozny, pictured here, was under siege for months from Russian heavy artillery. The city was almost completely destroyed. So here we have a clear foreshadowing of what is going on in Ukraine today. And what was the result of the Chechen War? It was a clear victory for Putin. It was brutal. It was bloody. There were many Russian losses as well as Chechen losses. But in the end, Russian uh, the Russian forces prevailed. Chechen resistance was crushed. Putin was able to install a, a warlord there. Um, and essentially re-establish Russian control over the region. This was a huge boost for Putin's career. Overnight, he went from a relatively unknown political figure to becoming a popular prime minister. He projected an image of a tough, active leader. This was in sharp contrast to Yeltsin, whose presidency was marked by illness, drunkenness, and inaction. In December 1999, Yeltsin resigned six months before his presidential term was to end. And in accordance with the Russian constitution, Putin uh, as prime minister assumed the role of acting president. Elections were then held uh, a few months later in March of 2000. Putin won those elections and was inaugurated as Russia's second president in May of 2000. So here we have Putin's rise to power, It was based on his image as a strong man, someone willing to use brutal military force in in order to reassert Russia's domination. Uh, Let me say just a couple words about U.S.-Russian relations at this time. U.S.-Russian relations under Putin were initially positive. Uh, With the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Putin was the first world leader to call President Bush and to offer his support. Later that same year, in November 2001, Bush and Putin had a summit meeting, which included a visit by Putin to Bush's ranch in Texas. But relations between the two countries soon soured. When the United States invaded Iraq in 2003, this was vehemently denounced by Putin. And then the following year, 2004, NATO underwent another round of expansion, adding several countries, the ones pictured here in the dark orange. um, The countries added included uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. This brought NATO right up to Russia's borders. This was seen as a hostile act by Putin and Russian military leaders. You know, To us, NATO is the good guys. To Russian leaders, NATO is an anti-Russian military alliance. And in 2008, uh, the Bush administration announced that Ukraine and Georgia should join NATO as well. Now, this did not happen. Other NATO countries did not agree to this. But it put forward the prospect that Ukraine and Georgia would join NATO at some point in the future. I don't have time to go into this in, in detail, but I should mention here that later that same year, in August 2008, Russia invaded Georgia. It drove uh, Georgian troops out of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, two separatist regions within Georgia. The war only lasted about two weeks, but it was another example of Putin's military aggression. And in fact, Russian troops have remained there in, these two regions of Georgia right up until the present day. Uh, So turning back to Ukraine, the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO put the country in a somewhat precarious position. If they had immediately been been admitted to NATO, they would have been safe. Um, But in this case, they were not members of NATO, and yet there was this um, possibility that they would join soon. So from Putin's point of view, any action he wanted to take against Ukraine, he knew he had to take it prior to Ukraine joining NATO. Uh, Once Ukraine was a member of NATO, any Russian move against the country could spark World War III with NATO countries. All right, let me um, shift to talk about domestic politics within Ukraine itself. And I'll start with the 2010 presidential election in which uh, this man here, Viktor Yanukovych, was elected Ukrainian president. Yanukovych is a Russian-speaking Ukrainian from the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. We've been hearing a lot about the Donbass recently. It's, uh, it's short for the Don River Basin. It's an in industrial region of eastern Ukraine. It's um, where the war is about to intensify. The war in Ukraine today is about to intensify. Yanukovych, um, in November of 2013, rejected Ukraine's pending agreement to strengthen ties with the European Union. And instead, he sought to strengthen economic ties with Russia. This was extremely unpopular within Ukraine. In fact, it sparked weeks of protest. Protesters demanded that uh, Ukraine have closer ties to the European Union. They also denounced Yanukovych for corruption and for his use of force against demonstrators. All of this culminated in the revolution of dignity in 2014 The revolution ousted Yanukovych from power. He fled the country and went to Russia. And the result was a new Ukrainian government with a more Western orientation. Um, Putin saw Ukraine's turn toward the West as a loss of influence for Russia. He claimed that uh, Ukraine might join the EU and join NATO uh, and that if this happened, Russia would lose control of its naval base at Sevastopol. Um, If you look on the map here, Sevastopol is um, a city on the Crimean Peninsula on the Black Sea. It's the home of Russia's Black Sea fleet. So it's a very important military asset, Russia's most important naval base. Putin's claim was that this prospect of Ukraine joining NATO would mean that Russia would lose its naval base there and that that it would become a NATO naval base instead. So Putin reacted um, with military aggression, sending Russian troops to seize Crimea. This is in 2014. Russia's seizure of Crimea was internationally condemned. Western countries levied sanctions to punish Russia economic sanctions. But in the end, Putin gained control of this territory. Territory, he, He also got a huge boost in popularity at home in Russia. So he probably concluded that his military aggression had once again paid off. Ukraine did not militarily resist this seizure, partly for fear of provoking a broader Russian invasion and partly because it was occupied with another military struggle, going on at the same time, this one in eastern Ukraine in the the Donbas region, uh, which is this other pink shaded area um, to the right. Um, So at the same moment, 2014, separatists in that region declared independence from Kiev. And Putin quickly sent Russian troops into that territory in order to back the separatists. So this region was um, an area of intense fighting from 2014 into 2015, fighting with separatists and the Russian military on one side and the Ukrainian military on the other. The fighting was finally de-escalated with the Minsk II Accords in February of 2015. The Minsk Accords were brokered by France and Germany uh, you can see the participants pictured here. On the far right is uh, Petro Poroshenko, who was the president of Ukraine at the time. The Minsk II Accords stipulated that Eastern Ukraine would receive autonomy. Um, and this gave Putin something that he wanted, because if this region of the country was autonomous, it would leave Ukraine weak and divided presumably unable to join NATO and unable to join the EU. But the Minsk two accords were deeply unpopular within Ukraine uh, and understandably so. If enacted, uh, these accords would mean uh, essentially the Ukrainian government losing control of Eastern Ukraine. Uh, The other problem is that the accords did not actually stop the fighting, low-level fighting continued in this region and um, is ongoing to this this day. Well, that brings us to the election of Volodymyr Zelensky. And here we have a very interesting contrast between Putin and Zelensky. Whereas Putin's rise to power was based on military aggression in Chechnya, Zelensky's rise to power was based on a TV comedy series, uh, Servant of the People, This was a show in which Zelensky played a high school teacher who was unexpectedly elected president of Ukraine. And then, in a case of life imitating art, Zelensky actually was elected president of Ukraine. He won the 2019 presidential election, defeating the incumbent Poroshenko, uh, winning 73% of the vote. Zelensky ran on a platform of fighting corruption and making peace in eastern Ukraine. He did make a sincere effort to strike a peace deal in eastern Ukraine, but this proved to be politically impossible. In in October 2019, Zelensky uh, announced a prospective deal with separatists in eastern Ukraine uh, by which the Ukrainian government would respect local elections there. In exchange for the withdrawal of Russian troops. But Zelensky was harshly criticized for even proposing this deal. Um, There were not only, he was criticized not only by uh, politicians in Ukraine, but by the Ukrainian public as well. Uh, You can see a photo here of protesters in Kiev who denounced any deal with Ukrainian separatists. people said that any elections held in eastern ukraine would be unfair because pro ukrainian residents there had been driven out by all the fighting and more fundamentally i think the ukrainian people were simply unwilling to give up sovereignty you know all these russian demands including autonomy for eastern ukraine recognition of russia's control of crimea uh, a pledge by ukraine that it not join nato All these things involved giving up a significant degree of Ukrainian sovereignty. So this was simply politically unacceptable in Ukraine. Zelensky and other politicians began to openly criticize the Minsk II Accords and to say that they were not going to grant autonomy to Eastern Ukraine. And it was at this point that Putin decided to take matters into his own hands. So, what accounts for Putin's decision to invade Russia? I'm sorry, invade Ukraine. Um, We've heard many uh, explanations for this. um, So, let me just consider them one at a time. One thing we hear quite often is that Putin is crazy, he's a madman, he's come unhinged. I think the truth, in some ways, is much worse. I think Putin is perfectly sane. Uh, He's simply willing to invade another country, kill thousands of people, all to achieve his geopolitical goals. As I've shown in this talk already, Putin has used military aggression multiple times in the past. This is not a case of him suddenly coming unhinged and deciding to invade Ukraine. Another explanation, uh, this is the one that we hear from Putin and the Russian government, is that this invasion of Ukraine is in order to protect Russian-speaking Ukrainians from neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Well, this is clearly just Russian propaganda. First of all, the Ukrainian government is not run by neo-Nazis. As many have pointed out, President Zelensky himself is Jewish. He had ancestors who were killed in the Holocaust. There's no way this can be construed as a neo-Nazi government. Secondly, This this idea that the Russian military is protecting Russian-speaking Ukrainians in uh, eastern Ukraine um, is also uh, equally ridiculous. Um, Russian shelling of cities there, including Kharkiv and Mariupol, um, this shelling has killed thousands of Russian-speaking Ukrainians. So Putin clearly has a strange way of protecting these people if he's going to shell their apartment buildings and kill them. Um, Another explanation we hear uh, for Putin's invasion of Ukraine is that this is just the first step towards invading other East European countries as well, uh, that Putin is intent on restoring the Soviet empire and restoring Russian control over Eastern Europe. Well, I'm sure if Putin could magically restore the Soviet empire, he certainly would. But he realizes that invading the the Baltic countries or Poland, for example, um, these countries that are members of NATO, this would trigger uh, a war with NATO, um, could easily escalate to become a nuclear war. Um, So I don't think he's willing to risk that. The crucial consideration with Ukraine is that it is not a member of NATO. So Putin thought that he could get away with this without having any sort of military intervention by NATO countries. So I think the, the fact is that Putin's um, aim here is more limited, though I'm not trying to minimize it in any way. This is clearly a flagrant violation of international law, an extreme violation of Ukrainian sovereignty and human rights. Um, but what from, from Putin's um, point of view, Ukraine is a country of vital strategic importance to Russia. So he invaded, planning to overthrow the government install some sort of puppet regime. This would have kept Ukraine out of NATO and under Russian control. It would also secure Russia's annexation of Crimea. In other words, a quick strike invasion that would increase Russian geopolitical power. Well, that raises the question, why did Putin miscalculate so badly? It's due to his decision-making process, which is deeply flawed. Putin now relies on a 12-member National Security Council to make all important decisions in Russia. This council is dominated by representatives of the military and security services. All of these people have very hawkish views. They're anti-Western, anti-American. They have a kind of fortress Russia mentality. Um, And as I said, these are really the only people Putin listens to anymore. During Putin's first decade in power, he actually enjoyed broader popular support due to economic growth. But in in the last 10 years, he has relied increasingly on repression to stay in power, and that means relying on the security services more than ever. Um, The security services personnel are quite different from the oligarchs in Russia, oligarchs are unsavory in their own in their own ways but uh, they were against this war um, not only because they feared having their yachts seized uh, it's because they want international connections international trade international travel all the things that have been destroyed by russia's invasion of ukraine so putin and this his his small group of national security advisors Um, badly underestimated the strength of the Ukrainian military. Uh, Somehow they thought Ukrainians would simply lay down their weapons in the face of a Russian onslaught. Obviously, this did not happen. Putin also underestimated the strength of Ukrainian national identity. Here he may have fallen victim to his own propaganda uh, about the fact that Ukraine is not a real country, That Ukrainians are just a subset of the Russian people. Um, Obviously, none of this is true either. Ukrainians have a strong sense of nationalism and patriotism. And finally, Putin and his advisors did not foresee the unity of Western countries or their willingness to inflict harsh economic sanctions. Perhaps they expected a repeat of 2014, because when Russia seized Crimea in 2014, There was Western condemnation, there were sanctions, but not the crushing economic sanctions that we see today. Um, Another thing that's happened is, it's not just Western governments inflicting economic punishment on Russia. International corporations have cut ties with Russia, have withdrawn from Russia. So all of this uh, is essentially punishing Russia as well for the invasion of Ukraine. Okay, let me cover um, one more topic, and that is public opinion in Russia. Russians have um, nothing against Ukrainians, far from it. Uh, Many Russians have relatives in Ukraine. They have friends in Ukraine. There are many Ukrainians that live in Russia. There's strong ties between the two populations. There's no way that Putin could have portrayed this war as a war against Ukrainians or an invasion of Ukraine. That is why he calls it a special military operation against neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Now, do Russians believe Putin's propaganda? It's very difficult to measure public opinion in Russia now since the war started. But we do have some information based on public opinion polling prior to the war. And what that polling shows is a sharp generational split. Within the Russian population. Older, more provincial Russians, those who get all their information from state television, are more likely to believe Russian propaganda, more likely to support Putin. These people are probably um, supporting the war today. Younger, more educated Russians, um, by contrast, uh, were even before the war, tended to be against Putin, tended to have much more favorable views of the West and the United States. These people are much more likely today to be against the war. Um, of course, uh, repression means that we no longer have uh, open protests of the war in Russia. There were protesters um, initially who were arrested some 15,000 of them. This photo shows a woman holding up a sign that says no to war, uh, and she's being arrested by the Russian police. Um, However, there is uh, some potential for popular discontent. I think as the war grinds on, as Russian casualties mount, as the economic hardship deepens, um, there's, there's certainly that possibility. I don't think there's any immediate threat to Putin's power, but if there's one thing that Putin hates even more than the idea of Ukraine joining NATO, it's the idea of Russians protesting his government. Um, So hopefully this will add some some pressure on Putin. Uh, I should say that I'm not very optimistic about the chances for a ceasefire and negotiated settlements. Um, it's just it's very hard to see how either side is going to compromise uh, in any substantial way. For Ukrainians, you know, their country's been invaded, they're defending their homeland, they're defending their sovereignty. Um, it's not easy for them to make some major concession to Russia to end the war. Um, Though I should mention that Zelensky has left open the, the possibility at least of negotiations, Putin, on the other hand, in his news conference uh, yesterday, April 12th, uh, stated that negotiations had come to a dead end and that Russia was just going to press forward with the war until it achieved all its aims militarily. Uh, So that's not very promising. It's it's certainly hard to imagine Putin admitting defeat and withdrawing his troops. Um, Still, I hope that there uh, in the future will be additional negotiations and some attempt at a ceasefire, because the alternative, I'm afraid, is that this war could drag on for months uh, or even years with thousands of more people killed. Well, thank you. I'll be glad to answer any questions.
0: Thank you, David. Um, I. Uh... You know, thank you so much for taking us through that carefully and um, really helping us to think about the different international forces that have led us to this place. I mean, a lot of this um, I've been reading and listening to people who see uh, in some ways Putin's rise as the rise of Stirlitz. You know, that at, at, with with Yeltsin in power, people were just embarrassed and frustrated. And what they wanted was a, a strong, brooding, thoughtful, silent, you know, spy from Germany, from the old uh, the old Soviet uh Uh, 17 Moments of Spring uh, show that had the spy, Stirlitz, who would come. And lo and behold, there comes Volodya Putin, who used to be himself uh, in Dresden in the KGB. So I want to invite everyone to ask some questions. I have many, many questions, as I always do. But let's start with John Mueller, um, who wanted to know, why did Ukraine do so badly economically after 1991. In 1991, its GDP per capita was about the same as Poland's, and by 2018 or so, it was less than one third of Poland's. And Ukraine was the poorest country in Europe. Um, I, I think probably Moldova is usually the poorest country in Europe. But let's uh, do. You have a thought about Ukraine's economy after 1991?
1: Right. Yeah. So so the the issue was that the Soviet economy uh, was so integrated. It relied on exchange between the different Soviet republics. The republics were not really set up to operate independently um, economically in any way. Uh, There were were, certain resources that were only available or developed, uh, certain industries only developed in one republic. Uh, As long as the Soviet Union was all one country, that wasn't a problem because they could send goods from one region to another. When the Soviet Union broke apart, all those independent countries, including Ukraine, faced enormous economic problems because they did not have sort of self-sufficient industries. Um, they had to rely on, you know, trying to then work out trade deals, import vital equipment, um, raw materials, and so forth. So, so that actually is what caused uh, enormous problems. I mean, there were, there were also just larger problems with the Soviet economy overall. Many of the factories in Ukraine, as well as in the Russian Federation and other places, those were simply inefficient. And based on um, you know, market capitalism, they either closed or they, they sort of you know, continued on in uh, a lackluster way with workers not being paid their wages uh, and so forth. So so all of that contributed to this very dire economic situation, uh, as as John Mueller says, in Ukraine as well as in Russia in the 1990s.
0: Right. I mean, we think about how long it took to build the the Soviet economic enterprise, but everything was very tightly laced. I remember uh, in the 1980s, Late 1980s, uh, when I was in Moscow, we had there was there was no soap powder because Lithuania was trying to was was trying to become independent, and some key component of soap uh, was 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 in Lithuania, and nobody none of the factories could work. And again, thinking about these factories, you know, under the Soviet system, it, it you could employ a lot of people. Because it didn't really matter. It wasn't really related to what you were producing. And of course, that that economic transition made a huge difference. I want to turn to Eb Annis, one of our colleagues uh, here at Ohio State, who is herself from Estonia. In the early 1990s, she writes, there was a vision of Russia joining both NATO and the European Economic Community, the EEC, that in 1993 became the European Union. How and why and when did this option for Russia's future collapse? I wonder if it was really actually a live option, but I remember it being spoken about.
1: Yeah, there, there were discussions um, in the early 1990s about this. And one of the proposals, which um, it's in a way is too bad it wasn't pursued further, was uh, NATO's partnership for peace. So um, there, there was a lot of discussion, You know, should NATO expand? Should NATO be disbanded after the Cold War? Or should it take on some new forms? So one initiative was a Partnership for Peace, which would have allowed an association for uh, the countries of Eastern Europe and for Russia to be um, these sort of partners with NATO, not full members, but partners. Um, and that, in fact, would uh, perhaps have avoided the situation where some countries were in NATO and some countries were not, um, which, uh, you know, as it turned out, was extremely. Uh, dangerous for Ukraine. Um, this, in the ends, this uh, path was not followed. Um, it was partly due to uh, what was seen as increasing Russian aggression. Uh, for example, the war in Chechnya that began to make um, uh, you know leaders in Eastern Europe very nervous because they saw a possibility for um, you know Russia a turn from. Um, democracy to autocracy a uh, uh, return to uh, russian aggression these countries you know you have to remember countries of eastern europe had just been under soviet domination for the previous 40 years so they wanted some sort of um, stronger guarantee against russian future russian aggression and they they essentially wanted full nato membership um, but that did result in the sort of collapse of this Partnership for Peace program. Uh, and it resulted in some countries being in NATO and some countries not being in NATO. Um, so as I said, that was a, a dangerous situation.
0: Right. And I know that this this question of, of NATO on the border is one that has been worrying Putin for a long time. But of course, NATO is on the border already uh, in the Baltics. And as people said, you know, a. a a NATO missile could reach Moscow from Ukraine in, in five minutes, it could reach it from Poland in seven minutes. It's not a big difference, right? So there is that's an absolutely sort of trumped up fear, it seems to me. Um I Aiken can, can asks this question, um, says, Thank you so much for this enlightening talk. Do we have reliable information about the impact of the sanctions on Russian people and their perception of this war? Is there a chance that the pressure from the West may, can make has made Russian people coalesce around Putin and his Russian war effort? It's a really good question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, as I was saying uh, before, we don't really have reliable information on public opinion in Russia. Uh, but I think that it is safe to say that um, these sanctions uh, are having an effect. Um, it looks like Russia's economy will contract by roughly 10% uh, in in a span of just three months. So that's a pretty severe economic contraction, which over time will, of course, affect um, average Russians uh, pretty severely. We don't really know how um, they will react to that. I imagine there will be a a divide within the Russian population where some people will um, uh, blame Putin, and blame him for starting this war that's causing all this all these problems. But some people may rally around him and see, you know, see this, the West as the enemy, the Western countries as inflicting these sanctions and this economic hardship. So certainly, um, you know, the I was mentioning before the, the public opinion polling prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which indicated that. Uh, older, more provincial, less educated um, Russians tended to support Putin and to view the West with hostility. So, you know, this—if um, they continue listening to Russia, pro- Russian propaganda on state television, they probably will tend to blame the West for any sort of economic pain. Uh, so, so yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a mixed picture. Um, hopefully, you know, there will be the economic pain will put some pressure on putin
0: um
1: but that remains to be seen
0: certainly access to independent news sources um has been closed off to 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 a great extent and so um i think you know what i'm understanding is that we should never pay attention to sociological uh question you know questions in um, I'm looking for the word APROS, questionnaires, you know, surveys uh, in in wartime, but it may also be the case that, you know, we in the West have been looking at the Levada Center as independent and they're still doing some polls and we should probably not pay attention to them because people simply can't answer polls correctly and the pollsters can't answer the questions, can't ask the questions correctly right now. Um, So, um, Somebody wants to talk about Hunter Biden. Uh, did, did the Hunter Biden emails impact or, or, or encourage the invasion that, that, that revealed some kind of corruption? I think it is worth talking a little bit about corruption in Ukraine, if you can address that. I mean, one of the reasons that Ukraine was really not a, in, in any danger of entering NATO at any time is because they still haven't uh, come near the conditions that NATO requires for entrance, including a, a lack of corruption within the government.
1: Right. Yeah, both the European Union and NATO have um, pretty strict requirements uh, for countries to to join. So yeah, Ukraine had not had not met those. Um, I'm afraid I don't have any expertise on Hunter Biden, so I can't really speak to that. Um, there well, there was this big problem of corruption in Ukraine. Uh, in fact, I mentioned that that was one of um, Zelensky's main uh, issues in the 2019 presidential. Election. One reason that people supported him was they saw him uh, as an outsider, not a typical politician who was corrupt. Somebody who was going to address issues of corruption in Ukraine. Um, of course, he didn't uh, have a chance to get far with that because of the war, the, because of Russian's invasion. So uh, at this point, it's kind of a moot question. But um, yeah, there were there were definitely a lot of problems of corruption in Ukraine prior to the war.
0: Yeah, and it's one thing to come in and say, you're going to solve those problems. It's another thing to address them. It's a, it's a complex situation, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, I think we've addressed this question already. Greg Zivoder wanted to know whether uh, Putin is a sociopath or a psychopath, but more importantly, are his threats of nuclear strikes realistic? That really is a question that we need to answer.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so very, very early on, I think like the second or third day after Russia's invasion. Putin put his nuclear forces on alert. Um, I think this is mainly saber rattling. I don't think this is a was a serious threat by him. He just wanted to remind NATO countries that he has a lot of nuclear missiles and that they should not get directly involved in the war in Ukraine. So, um, so you know, there's always a danger of nu- nuclear escalation, but the danger would be, of course. Much greater if NATO troops were actually engaged directly with Russian troops in Ukraine. The situation that we're in now, where NATO is simply aiding Ukraine, uh, is much less likely to lead to nuclear escalation. Um, so I, I don't think, I, you know, I think Putin likes to bring this up um, fairly often simply to remind. Uh, other countries of Russia's huge nuclear arsenal but i don't th- i don't see any immediate danger of nuclear war
0: I think that Sean Conroy brought up the the four levels of alert, and this is only the first of four, or something going up from one to two, something like that. Um, and it's also the case, you know, I, I, if we're going to, we can blame Jeffrey Sachs for some of these problems. You know, for, I don't think Hunter Biden is the one we need to blame. I often think too about uh, why we uh, why we insisted after the fall of the Soviet Union that that Ukraine uh, give all their nuclear weapons to Russia. Uh, we we mm. could have two nuclear states, which would have been even worse. Uh, but it is one of those things that Ukraine, I think, feels uh, was upset with at, at that moment. That suddenly it was easier for the West to think of just one nuclear force, and so we we made that happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, sh- I, uh, in fact, I, uh, my first draft of this talk, I actually included discussion of the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. So um, this was uh, an issue um, after the breakup of the Soviet Union. There were nuclear weapons in four of the successor states, uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, Belarus, and Ukraine. Um, The concern among American policymakers was that we don't want nuclear proliferation. And so through various negotiations and financial incentives, they got um, Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan to give up their nuclear weapons in exchange for security assurances. So Ukrainians very much feel betrayed by this because at these 1994 um, negotiations and signing of the Budapest Memorandum, uh, Yeltsin, who was Russian president at the time, as well as Bill Clinton uh, and John Major of um, Britain, all signed this agreement saying that um, they would guarantee the security of Ukraine and its borders in exchange for Ukraine giving up these nuclear weapons. So then in 2014, and then uh, once again in 2022, um, this, this past February, uh, Putin flagrantly violated those agreements by first seizing Crimea and then invading Ukraine. Um, so these, these uh, agreements really, as it turned out, did not have any, any force behind them.
0: Right, yeah, absolutely. So Jeff Trimble wants to um, think again about the Crimea takeover, which he says, you know, came too close on the heels of Maidan uh, to be considered uh, a result of Maidan. Uh, these two events took place uh, within a matter of days. There wasn't enough time to work out the sophisticated complex military prep uh, to deploy the little green men and other forces. So Crimea must've been in the works earlier. And so he wondered what your thoughts are on that. It is a very yeah. really important
1: question. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff, for, for pointing that out. Um, right. So so Putin sort of claimed that this uh, takeover of Crimea was uh, as a result of what he he called uh, a coup, rather than calling it a revolution. He called it a CIA-inspired coup uh, that overthrew Yanukovych. Um, but as you point out, uh, the fact that this happened so quickly indicates that actually the Russian military had planned for this prior to that happening. So we don't really know how long these, these plans were in the works. They could have been drawn up years before, in fact. Um, but it's clear that, uh, that Putin and the Russian military had these designs on Crimea. Um, and that they 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 planned to do this, uh, and maybe we're just looking for a pretext to do it. But that that 2014 takeover uh, of Crimea, um, you know, as I said, was something that Ukrainian military hardly had time to resist. Uh, they they didn't really resist it, um, partly because the, the fighting broke out in eastern Ukraine in the Donbas region of eastern Ukraine at the very same time, so the Ukrainian military was preoccupied with that. And of course, Russia sent troops into eastern Ukraine as well. So um, 2014 really saw a massive incursion of of Russian forces into Ukraine, um, which was exceeded only by the February um, invasion, which was, of course, much more massive, leading to the ongoing war there right now.
0: Well, and certainly Crimea, uh, for Russians, Crimea felt different, right? Russians uh, believe that, that, many Russians believe that uh, Khrushchev gave Crimea to Ukraine and that he didn't have the right to do it uh, during the Soviet period. And um, a lot of my academic friends were what we came to call krimnashistik, right? This is a term that emerged that Crimea is ours, it's always been ours. I have colleagues who wrote books about it. I have colleagues in Crimea who were happy, who really were in favor of of this quote unquote referendum and really were in favor of moving back to uh, being part of Russia. So it isn't the case that all Crimeans you know, preferred being in Ukraine and, and, and the corruption problems of Ukraine uh, since 91, uh, contributed to low salaries. Uh, in Crimea, people were concerned and they thought things were better in Russia and they were watching Russian television in many cases. So it's all that kind of complex, really, really. Uh, one of the reasons that, that Putin was able then to rise to power is that Crimea was popular among many Russians, uh, regardless of, of the propaganda. That they were right. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 You're right, Angela. That that was a very popular move in Russia. Russians did not see that as an invasion uh, of Crimea. They saw Crimea as as most Russians that is. They saw Crimea as uh, part of Russia. So this was like taking back this uh, territory. Um, you know, back in the 1950s when Khrushchev. Uh, sort of took Crimea and said, okay, it's no longer gonna be part of the Russian Federative Republic. It'll be part of the U- Ukrainian Republic. It didn't really seem to make that much difference because it was all one country back then. And then when the breakup of the Soviet Union came, of course, um, it's different countries. That referendum, so um, just to fill in the details there, after, the, after Russian troops took over Crimea, they held a referendum there for the population to vote. You can't really consider uh, a referendum held under military occupation to be a free and fair vote. Um, but that that vote did uh, show um, an overwhelming majority of, of people in Crimea wanting to be part of the Russian Federation. So again, it's not. It, it, it was a it was an extreme violation of international law, and it certainly did not conform to any sort of um, uh, you know, standards of a free election. Um, but uh, Putin did use that to sort of give give a sense of legitimacy for Russia seizing control of Crimea. Yeah.
0: So I want to get to our last questions here. We have a few minutes left. Uh, Phil Klein just says, great summary, thank you. And he wants to talk about Belarus. Belarus is being forced into greater integration and alliance with Russia. Can you speak to the invasion of Ukraine being part of Putin trying to forge a greater Russia? It seems similar to Hitler trying to form a greater Germany. Surely Putin could have learned from this failure, alas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So thoughts about that, greater Russia.
1: Yeah, right. Um, So I think that, um, so Belarus, let me say first, Belarus has almost become a vassal state state of Russia. Um, You know, there were protests against Lukashenko, the, the president of Belarus. Um, that were only put down with Russian aid. So he is actually dependent on Putin and the Russian government to stay in power in Belarus. Um, so unfortunately, that means that um, really, you yeah, know, this, this is almost, we're almost to a, a stage where Belarus could be absorbed by Russia. Uh, I don't know if that will happen or not, but in any case, it's it, it does not have any Belarus does not have any real independence from Russia or independent foreign policy. And we saw that at the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that the Russian troops came in from Belarus as well as from Russia. Um, so is this part of a greater, greater Russia? You know, I think that Putin does, in fact, see Belarus and Ukraine as kind of parts of Russia. He, he doesn't, you know, some of this may be propaganda to legitimize his invasion of Ukraine, which is for geopolitical reasons. Um, but it also seems that he he does not really um, recognize uh, you know, people of Belarus or the people of Ukraine as as independent peoples. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I guess I guess you could consider this um, that that in particular these two former. Uh, Soviet republics would be the two that he would most consider part of Russia. If he wanted to form a greater Russia, these would be the ter- territories that he would most like to take take control of.
0: We have one more question about China stepping in to bolster Russia's economy. But I wanted to, I wondered if you could actually address the question of uh, Ukrainian of, of what Putin's actions have done and what this war has done to create. And solidify the Ukrainian nation, including Russo-Ukrainians. I don't know whether which of those questions you want to ask. We really don't have much more time, so it's your choice. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let me let me speak to that, that question about Ukrainians. Um, so right, if, if Putin's goal uh, was to deny that Ukrainians are a people and just say they're a subset of the of, of Russians, um, he's achieved the exact opposite because uh, this has um, inspired a great deal of Ukrainian patriotism. Even Russian, even many Russian-speaking Ukrainians, um, you know, they they feel a strong sense of allegiance to Ukraine. They don't want their country dismembered. They don't want it invaded by Russia. So uh, if anything, this has um, greatly strengthened Ukrainian national identity and Ukrainian nationalism. Um, so so right, the, this, this war, this Russian invasion, um, certainly has in, in some ways overcome some of the divides that, that used to exist within Ukraine. There used to be quite a divide between strong Ukrainian nationalism in the West and Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the east. Uh, and now I think for many of uh, for much of the population, they, they feel, uh, strong unity as one Ukrainian people.
0: Well, I think that's, I want to respect your time and our audience's time. I think that that's a good place to, to end our conversation today. This was super, David. I really want to thank you. Um, everyone, we will be able to uh, offer this as a recording. Um, I watched the Slavic Center uh, news. Uh, letter, as well as Origins uh, website, I think we'll be able to offer this webinar for other people to share with your family and friends. Again, thank you for caring about Ukraine. Thank you for learning about Ukraine. Um, we have one more uh, lecture in our series. We will talk with Yarabel Zerkovich who is a professor at the University of Dayton, professor of political science, along with Paul Morrow, who is at the Human Rights Center in, uh, at the University of Dayton next week. At this time um for the last in our series the war is not ended the series will end for now as we come to the end of our semester but we will continue to do our best to keep you informed about uh, the contexts and the repercussions of this terrible war in ukraine thank you everyone appreciate it